Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. That, if you have one of our church Bibles, that'll be found on page 204. If you need a Bible, um, it would help a lot, especially today, if you had a copy of the scriptures in front of you. So if you don't have one on your device or you'd like a copy of the Bible, just raise your hand. Satch would be glad to bring you one. Judges chapter 19 will be on page 204 in the brown Bibles. In the blue Bible, you'll have to figure it out. Judges chapter 19. This is what Holy Scripture says. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to, the, to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. 
And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we come to this most difficult part of our Bibles, remembering that you are good and holy and true and beautiful. And it seems that it is exactly here where we can see how evil and harmful we can be when left to ourselves. There is much here that we would rather not think about, but you would have us not only think about it, but learn from it. So we are coming here today asking for your help. As the preacher, I want your help to say things the right way. Do not omit some word of comfort or encouragement that would serve a brother or a sister. And yet I know, Lord, that I can't possibly say all that needs to be said. So please fill in all the blanks by your spirit. And as listeners to the preached word, I pray for all who are here today Give us all ears to hear and comprehend what is true. Show us, most of all, what will become of us, what would have become of us, had you not intervened. We believe what you told us through the apostle, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us to live righteous lives from this text. And somehow, Lord, in this whole big mess of Judges chapter 19, show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. My brother-in-law, Rob, was athletic, intelligent, good-looking man, beloved high school teacher, not just my brother-in-law, but my friend. One day he called us and delivered the shocking news that he had just been diagnosed with stage four of colon cancer. Over the next year, he got sicker and sicker and then he died. And you would have looked at Rob on the day that he called us and thought, he looks great. He looks fine. He doesn't look sick. How could he be sick? Is he really sick? Which is much of the way 
a lot of people would have looked at Israel as a nation in the days of the judges. I mean, Israel had her land. She was fending off all of her enemies. Even when things get rough, God sends a judge, a deliverer to rescue them and to save them. And yet we read in Judges chapter 2, verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. As we've made our way through the book of Judges, we've met all 12 judges, six major, six minor. The major ones we hear lots about, the minor ones sometimes just a name, very little data. But all through the hundreds of years of the judges, we keep reading something like this, and the land had rest for 80 years, and the land had rest for 40 years, and the land had rest for 40 years. And we wonder, what was going on during those 40 years, those 80 years, those however many years when the land had rest? What was happening? Well, clearly, they were not all serving Yahweh with an undivided heart because the moment the judge died, the whole nation turns their back on Yahweh again. So what was Israel like during these years of rest from foreign invaders? Well, that's what the last five chapters of the book of Judges tells you. It's not happening after the Judges, it's during the Judges. And the last five chapters of the book tell you that Israel was a convoluted mess. Let's look at chapter 19 of Judges. And as you turn there again, let me just give you four foundational thoughts that I think are going to be very helpful in understanding Judges chapter 19. Four foundational thoughts, and then we'll get into the, the narrative itself. So the first foundational thought is this. The, the event in chapter 19 is one of two events at the end of the book. The first one, remember, was the rent rev who marched into peaceful Laash with the tribe of Dan with all his fake gods. He was a Levite. This one, the second one, is also about a Levite, but a different Levite at a different time. That's the first thing you need to note. Second thing, like the first event, this chapter, chapter 19, records the facts of an event without endorsing the event. It's just the record of history. And as we will see, this is a very skilled author who wrote the book of Judges because he's making very obvious allusions to Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants you to see that this event that he's describing is full of evil. The author is subtly telling us Here's how bad things get when you abandon God. Third thing, the timing. The events of chapters 19 to 21 occur very early on in the days of the judges. We know that for certain because of Judges chapter 20, verses 27 and 28, which place it within two generations of the priest, Aaron. Aaron dies before they enter the promised land. So these two events at the end of the book are taken out of chronological order, probably for a couple of reasons. One, to give the storyline, the narrative in the, in the parts of the judges a little more sense, but also they're taken as sort of two examples. Here's what it was like in those days of rest. Here's what it was like in Israel. Here's how bad things really were. Finally, these two events with these two Levites at the end of the book, the rent rev Levite and the betray-your-wife Levite, these two events are put together like this at the end of the book to say, this is what total depravity looks like. This is the total depravity of Israel. Moses' line is corrupted by the time his grandson leads Dan to worship idols in the north. Aaron's line is corrupted by the time his grandson leads to civil war against Benjamin in the south. All the good of all the people from top 
to bottom. It's spoiled and perverse within two generations of entering the promised land. And the very ones who should have been calling Israel back to obedience to the word of God, the Levites, that's your job. They're the ones who are leading people astray. So if you keep those four things in mind, we should be able to navigate this story and make some sense out of it. Today we're just going to deal with sort of act one of a two-act play, chapter 19 and a little bit into chapter 20, which is the Civil War. We'll get to that in the weeks ahead. And then we will complete the sad days of the judges. This sermon I have called The Tale of Woe, and it begins with scene one. Scene one is this, a religious man with a bad marriage. Verse one, those days there was no king in Israel. Certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Now a concubine is something like, it doesn't make much sense to us today, but like a second tier wife. Men who were of some means and wealth and power would often build their house by fathering children through these secondary wives or concubines. And concubinage was never God's intention. Jesus made it very clear that back in Genesis, the, the, the intention was for one biological man and one biological woman to be wed in a permanent marriage. However, he because he condescends to their weakness, God gives in his law uh, particular laws that are aimed to protect concubines, just as there were laws to protect slaves and servants. Now, this concubine, uh, verse 1, uh, rather verse 2, tells, tells us that she was unfaithful to her husband. And right away, we are faced with another very uncomfortable fact. It seems that she... You could translate this, she played the harlot. Whether that was prostitution or adultery, we don't know. She was sexually unfaithful to her husband. We do not know the details. But this highlights the days in which this event occurred. Nobody is innocent. Now, I want to be really precise here. I am not saying, please do not hear me say at any point in this sermon, that the concubine deserved what she got. <laughs> not at all. I am just saying that, like always, sin leads to chaos. And it is, it's overly simplistic to suggest that this concubine was only a victim, even though she was horribly victimized. The author of the book is showing you how truly awful things were. Even the victims are sinners. And again, we don't know what provoked this unfaithfulness in her. It very well might have been that her husband was a jerk because there's, there's, it kind of looks like one when you get through the rest of the story. We don't know. But even if that were true, that does not grant her permission to commit adultery, which she clearly had done. Verse 3, and then her husband arose, went after her to speak kindly to her, bring her back. He had with him his servant, a couple donkeys. She brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, the Levite, he came with joy to meet him. So it, it appears that his intention, her husband's intention, the Levite's intention was to pour out his heart to her. One would assume that would involve maybe admitting fault or something like that. Hard to know. Either he was out to share with her his heart or he was trying to win back her heart. Probably something of both. And at the front end of this story, that seems to hold out a bit of promise, doesn't it? The promise grows when we read the father-in-law was glad to see him. At least at this point in the story, it appears that he wants the reunion to work between his daughter and the man. So everything's looking promising. In fact, it leads to this kind of celebratory dinner or feast in verse 4. The father-in-law, the girl's father made him stay. He remained three days. They ate and drank and spent the night there. By the time the fourth day arrives, the, the Levite's itching to go. And yet, verse 7, when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. 
concubine's father just keeps prevailing. And so a fourth day of feasting takes place. And then verse 8, on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart. Wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, behold, now the day is waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Just keeps doing the same thing. <laughs> now, it's, it's, now it's late afternoon on the fifth day, and the Levite says, okay, that's enough feasting. My heart is merry enough. And the father-in-law tries his speech, but it's to no avail. They leave. It's late afternoon. Verse 10, the man would not spend the night. He rose up, departed, arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, his concubine, Verse 11, when they near Jebus, the day was nearly over. This is before it's been conquered, so it's a, it's a pagan city. Let us turn to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it, said the servant to his master. His master said, we'll not turn aside into the city of foreigners. That's important. Don't want to be with the foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. But we will go on into Gibeah, a city that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. That little, that little geographical tidbit is, met, is meant as prophetic irony. <laughs> the Levite refuses to go to Jerusalem because it's peopled with foreigners. He's only going to go to an Israelite city. You've got to remember that. Verse 13, said to his young man, come, let us draw near to one of these places. Spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. They passed on, went their way, sun went down on them near Gibeah. That's the city which belongs to Benjamin. That's the tribe. Remember, there's 12 tribes in Israel. Gibeah is one of the cities in the tribe of Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in, spend the night. He went in, sat down in the open square. And it's right there where another biblical story ought to come to mind of some other visitors to another city who waited for hospitality in the open square. Takes us to scene two, which is this. An Israelite city with an immoral bent. Israelite is an important word. The startling truth that you're about to discover is that Gibeah, an Israelite city, Gibeah is Israel's Sodom. Sodom, as you know, was an ancient pagan city. But the author of Judges is taking pains to connect pagan Sodom to Israelite Gibeah. Listen to the Sodom story from Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, okay? This is the story of Sodom in Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. That's Lot with the angels in Sodom. Now listen to the account in Judges 19 of the two men and the concubine in the open square of Gibeah. Verse 16 of Judges 19, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. Just a little note there. That means that this old man who lives in Gibeah comes from the same place this Levite is returning. So there's a natural bond between them. Verse 17, he lifted up his eyes, saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? He said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judea to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We've got straw, feed for our donkeys, bread and wine for me and your female servant, young man with your servants. There's, there's no lack of anything. The old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house, gave the donkeys feed. They washed their feet and ate and drank. So much like the story of Sodom, these travelers are invited into a home and they are refreshed. 
but also like the story of Sodom, things go south really quickly. Do you remember what happened with Lot and his angelic visitors in Sodom? Back to Genesis 19, verse 4. Before they, Lot and the visitors, lay down, the men of the city were in Sodom now, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. So this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot drew near to break down the door. Now listen for the echoes of that story with Judges 19, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, the old man and the Levite, behold, the men of the city, now we're in Gibeah, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So just like in Sodom, a pagan city that's going to be destroyed by fire from heaven, these men want their neighbor to send out his guest so they can commit a homosexual gang rape using him. Now, since we're here, let me just point out that evangelicals do not believe that the only sin in the Bible is homosexuality. Even though this is gang rape homosexuality, the Bible is quite clear that all homosexuality, even between consenting adults, is sin. It's not the only sin. It's not the greatest sin. But we need to be clear that it is one of the sins in the Bible that God forbids. God forbids homosexual sex just like God forbids adultery between a man and a woman, or God forbids stealing from your mother, God forbids worshiping an idol, God forbids any sex outside of marriage between a biological male and a biological female, they are all sins. At the same time, committing homosexual acts is a sin that often receives strict punishment from God because those homosexual acts are a repudiation of the created order. A man was created by God to have sexual relations with a woman to whom he is married and a woman with her husband. Full stop, no exceptions, no variations. So homosexual acts are often referred to in the Old Testament as an abomination. That is a very strong word. It is a word of God's complete rejection and judgment because they, those homosexual actions are actually a repudiation of God himself. That is why in part, whether it was Lot in Sodom or the old man in Gibeah, both reply the same way when the men of their city demand that they be given these visitors for homosexual sex. The old man says in verse 23, Master House went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Now would that that old man had just stopped right there. <laughs> because his next sentence is just as bad as Lot's was. Do you remember what Lot does? Lot says, don't harm these men, but here are my daughters. Verse 24. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you in your own eyes. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. What is this outrageous thing? Homosexual gang rape of the Levite. But is sending out a virgin girl and a married woman any less outrageous? Of course not. 
But this is the kind of logic people operate with when they do what is right in their own eyes. Let me speak to us for a moment. Let me speak to us in the big tent of evangelicals because we can do the same thing. I lived through the 80s and the 90s when the broader evangelical church often acted like homosexuality was the world's worst sin publicly decrying it, mocking it, making fun of homosexuals, and at the same time they were tolerating unbiblical divorce between professing Christians in their churches, covering up adultery in their churches, and horrendously asking confirmed sexual predators to just quietly leave the church without calling the cops. We were judging one sin worse than another. And there is a sense where this text is reminding us that all sin is sin. When the church starts to do what is right in her own eyes, she easily downplays the sins she struggles with while screaming at the ones she does not. And I think it is this inconsistency that has so often harmed our witness to the world. Let me be as clear as I can be since we are here. We have room in this church for a man who struggles against homosexual thoughts, inclinations, and temptations. Just as we have room in this church for the man who struggles against the temptation to steal from his employer. Now, if either of those men act on those temptations, then they will be called to repentance and we will restore them when they repent. But if either of them refuses to repent after the proper procedure of Matthew 18 and multiple appeals and pleading, then eventually they will be removed from the membership of this church for their lack of repentance. Why? Because we can no longer affirm their profession of faith in Jesus because they're refusing to obey Jesus. The church is not full of perfect people. The church is full of people who follow a perfect savior. All sins are outrageous in the eyes of God, especially mine, but all must be dealt with in the proper way. Back to the atrocities in Gibeah, where we arrive at which is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to read, verse 25. The men of the town would not listen to him, the old man. So the man, the Levite, seized his concubine, seized her, made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. There's just no way to hide from this awful verse. There's no angelic rescue here like there was in Sodom. In Sodom, the angels seized Lot and brought him safely into the house. In Gibeah, the Levite seizes his wife and throws her out of the house. In Sodom, the angels blinded the perverts to save the women. In Gibeah, the Levite betrays his woman to save himself. He forced her out there. He seized her. He pushed her out the door. And then he went in the house and slept. And the atrocity occurs. Instead of gang raping the Levite, they turn their lust and sexual immorality against his wife. The text is very pointed. They knew her. That's a euphemism for sexual relations. They abused her. You will not speculate on what that was. They held her against her wishes. They only let her go when they were done with her in the morning. 
I think it's a pretty fair conclusion that when men and women do what is right in their own eyes, it seems to be it's most often the women who suffer the most. God's design is for men to use their strength to protect women. But when they do what is right in their own eyes, they objectify women and they victimize women. This event is a total moral catastrophe. I want you to say it again. I want you to just get this in your minds. Nowhere does God condone or approve of this atrocity. As I said at the start, these last five chapters are reporting events. They're not condoning them. I had the privilege a few years back to be at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And much of the history in that museum concerns slavery. I think it's one of the most profound places to visit on the planet because it's talking about unjust slavery. But all you do as you walk through the museum, all that happens is you're just presented with facts. No moral judgments are given. No tour guide along with you saying, isn't this awful, isn't this bad? It's just the accumulation of facts and artifacts and the story of American slavery. By the time you get to the end, well, long before, you just know it was evil, it was wrong. And in the same way, the end of Judges is displaying what life looks like when people do what is right in their own eyes. And you could, you could just see how wrong it is. And if that's not enough, the obvious tie-in to Sodom certifies it. That's where reading a, a book of the Bible as a whole book is so important. Remember where we are in the book. These last two events are being put here out of their chronological order as a way of sort of putting a cherry on top, the days of judges. This is what happens when men don't follow God. These are the kinds of things, these are just symbolic of what the kind of stuff that was going on through those hundreds of years of the judges. These are the things that are the opposite of what God approves. God calls you to love him and he calls you to love your neighbor. People are doing the opposite of that. God does not approve of this. He does not approve of the Levite. He does not approve of the sexually perverse Benjaminites. And if you have been raped or sexually abused, God did not approve of that either. But if you are his through Christ, he approves of you. One of the great hardships of sexual assault is that the victim often feels a sense of responsibility. Like they had it coming, they deserved it. Often the person who, the very one who's abusing them is telling them as much that somehow they brought this on themselves. And if you're believing that lie, I want to say to you, you did not deserve it. You were sinned against. And God, who knows all of your life, looks at you, sister. He looks at you, brother. And he says, I accept you. You're mine. I have cleansed you from all unrighteousness. I love you. And in the last day, there will be justice. In verse 26, it feels like our author can't even bear to refer to this woman as the, as the Levite's wife anymore, not even his concubine. She's put into terms of ownership. The woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house. <laughs> Where her master was. He might have set off to win her heart, but in the end, he shows that he viewed her as nothing more than property, chattel, a plaything. Other people are not things for you to objectify and use, whether physically 
God forbid there's anyone here harming any little one in here. Other people are not your plaything. Whether physically or in your own sullied imagination, they are men and women who have been made in the image after the likeness of God. They are priceless and valuable because of who created them. And that grand artist, God himself, demands that you never view those eternal souls as if they were your personal toy or property. I am sorry to say that this story gets worse. In verse 26, it's not clear what happened to her. Is she unconscious? Is she already dead? We can't tell. And I think the author is being deliberately vague. What we do know for sure is that the scoundrel Levite slept like a baby while his wife was raped and assaulted all night long. Verse 27, and her master rose up in the morning. When he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. This Levite doesn't even have the decency to bend down and tend to her. He simply stands over her, tells her to get up. If there was any doubt in your mind as to his real view of his wife, here is your proof. Get up. But there was no answer. So he picked her up, slung her across his donkey, and took her home. And the story gets still worse. Verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Difficult to know in the original text whether that's the Levite's message that went with the body parts or whether it's how people responded. Either way, it doesn't matter. This poor woman receives no decent burial I want you to know there's nothing in the law that would permit this, this dismembering. That's the desecration of a corpse. Not long from now, King Saul is going to cut up oxen and distribute oxen throughout Israel as a call to arms. But this is different. This is vile. This is evil. I'm pointing you out because you've got to see that this Levite is not a godly man. That will become even more obvious in the next scene. So the woman's limbs are sent to every tribe except for one. And that provokes a national assembly in scene three, a lost nation with a broken conscience. Chapter 20, verse one, all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's at the top, Beersheba at the bottom. It's a way of saying from north to the south, including the land of Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan. So that's, that's the people who live on the other side of the water. And the congregation assembled as one man to Yahweh at Mizpah. This is the only time in the whole book of Judges that the whole nation comes together. Everybody but Benjamin. Think about all the wars, all the different judges. The judge would blow the trumpet or he'd you know, do whatever, send the messengers out. He'd call Israel. But who would come? It would never be the whole nation. It would be certain tribes, usually the tribes that were closest to the battle lines. The people who had the most to lose but you scatter the limbs of a woman around and everybody's interest is piqued. And they all come, not to fight a foreign invader, but to fight each other. There is a reason that newspapers sell better and talk shows gain more listeners when there's gossip, war, and sexual promiscuity to report. <laughs> there's a reason members' meetings are better attended if there's a... <laughs> scent of controversy in the air. Israel would not come together as one man for righteous reasons under Deborah, under Gideon, under anybody, but she wasted no time getting to Mizpah to get the sordid details of this Levite affair. No, brother, sister, don't be like the Israelites here. Love what is good. Do what is right. 
Verse 2, the chiefs of all the peoples of all the tribes presented themselves. Verse 3, Benjamin's not there. They say, tell us how it happened. Verse 4, the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. Fact. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me. False. And surrounded the house against me by night. Fact, kind of. They meant to kill me. False. They violated my concubine and she is dead. Fact. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, sent her out, and now give your advice. This Levite would have made for a great politician because he knows what to say, what not to say, and how to say it. He makes, for instance, no mention of why he was in Gibeah. You know, that he was going to get his wife back who had abandoned him. He suggests that the leaders of that city wanted to fight him and kill him, not that the worthless men, the sons of Belial, wanted to rape him. He says these men violated his concubine, but he leaves out the fact that he grabbed her, threw her out to them, and slept the night away soundly. This Levite is no better than the Levite in the last chapter. He's a liar and he's a coward. But the nation believes his version of the story. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent, none of us will return to his house. Verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city as one man. So there's Benjamin hunkering down in her own territory. The 11 tribes are taking oaths at Mizpah, like oaths like uh, chapter 20, verse 8. None of us will go to his tent. None of us will return to his house till we repay Gibeah of Benjamin. Or chapter 21, verse 7, we will not give the Benjaminites any of our daughters for wives. Vows. We've seen how well vows work out in the book of Judges so far. In fact, these oaths and vows are going to only end up exacerbating the problem. The whole situation is going to descend into civil war, more abuse of more women, and awfulness upon awfulness. And we read all of this and wonder, why, O Lord? Why do all these same issues still plague our world? Why do nations lose their conscience? Why do cities exult in vile practices? Why do bad men harm their own wives? Why don't things ever get better? And of course, the only reasonable and logical answer is that we are sinners. We are born under the sway and influence of an evil we cannot resist. And if God did not restrain us, we would all eventually destroy ourselves. Is there no one righteous on this earth? Is there no person who walks in love and decency? Is there no man who in order to save his sinful wife would offer himself in her place Oh, yes, there is. For another man came to save his sinful bride. His name is Jesus Christ. And instead of throwing out his bride to the wolves, he pulled her into safety and he gave himself to the abusers. He died in her place. He died that she might live. And if you place all of your sins on that man, he will pull you into the place of safety and give up his life for you too. If you reach out to him in faith, he will seize you and carry you safely out of Sodom before it is destroyed forever. He will save you forever and ever, world without end. You will become a part of his church, the ones called out from the world who gather together in the name of Jesus, his people, his metaphorical bride, all those for whom he laid down his life. It doesn't matter how badly you have been treated, and as hard as this may be to be believe it does not matter how badly you have treated others if you repent from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ he will save you we need a savior God has provided one so turn to him believe on him Your only other option is to do what is right in your own eyes, which will lead you straight to hell in this life and in the next.
Let's pray together. Show your mercy, Lord, and your great kindness by sending your Holy Spirit to teach, comfort, strengthen, save, and bless. If there is a brother or a sister here today who is harming another, please grant them the grace to repent right now, to confess their sins, please don't let them hear these words and continue. And if there is some little one here, whether young or old, who's being mistreated, help them to come to me, one of the other pastors, so that we can help them. God, protect us from all forms of evil, please. Help us to be the kind of Christians who die to self, take up our cross daily and follow you. Make us humble, not proud, dependent, not selfish, honest, not hypocrites. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.